Let's uh, go ahead and pray, because today we're talking about truth, and I don't want to be struck down by lightning. Please pray with me. God, we are grateful that you call us into your arms out of the variety of circumstances that we live our lives in. You call us when we are faithful, and you call us when we are treacherous. You call us when we are hopeful, and you call us when we are doubtful. You embrace us when we are lovable, and you embrace us when we are angry and prickly. There's nothing that we do, no state that we are in, no way that we can be at all that keeps you away from us. We ask, Lord, that as we consider your scripture and as we consider our calling, that we will turn our attention wholly upon you, that we will focus on your voice and focus on your intention for us as part of creation, as stewards of creation. Pray, God, that you will convict us of the things within us that are malfunctioning, that are slightly off base, that aren't all that bad but could be better. Bring those to light. And then may your light transform those things into things that instead reflect your truth. We know, Lord, that in our weakness, your truth and your perfection is made known. So may we give you all of our weaknesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture for today is a short one. It comes out of John 8. John is the one, the, so out of the four gospels, you have the three synoptic gospels, and then you have John. John likes to tell stories. It's very well written. It's a very high-end Greek, if you were reading it in the Greek, uh, very poetic and elaborate. And uh, when we read the book of John, we hear more of Jesus speaking. We hear more of Jesus saying, what Jesus believes about himself. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating book. For me, it's one of the more difficult gospels to read versus some of the others, uh, which is why I think we're only taking two verses today. Uh, these verses happen in the midst of a larger story that's going on of Jesus interacting with the leaders of the temple. So here, Having had these interactions with the leaders of the temple, Jesus turns his attention only to those, the Jews who had believed in him. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. The first people who believed in Jesus as the Christ were people who were Jewish. So these are to his disciples and to others who came out of their faith who were believing that he was indeed the Messiah. So in verse 31 in chapter 8, it says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I came across this article uh, this week. It's not a new article. It was written in 2010 or so. Um, But it really struck me because the title of the article was, This is a True Story. And that headline was written by a woman named Juliana Baggett. She is a creative writer, but this was not a fiction piece. She starts her article by saying this. She says, I spent my childhood listening to my mother tell one whopper of a story after another. One set of our ancestors allegedly found a baby wrapped in vines after a storm, my mother said. Another discovered a valuable diamond brooch covered in tar in a bathroom stall. 
What's more, three of her uncles, all baseball aficionados, were buried at the site of a North Carolina field where they once played. And here's the kicker. They were supposedly interred in their respective fielding positions. No wonder my mother held people in rapt attention at dinner parties and in line at the supermarket and at bus stops, Juliana said, because jaw-dropping events were apparently commonplace in my mother's formative years. And then Juliana goes on to talk about how she had wanted to be unique like her mother, about how she wanted to fit into that world of fascinating dinner party conversation that her mother so effortlessly inhabited. And so, Juliana says, she invented other realities in order to make herself appear equally intriguing and charismatic. For instance, she pretended, began to pretend that she was Lebanese, often speaking in a broken accent and refusing to do certain things that went against the rules of her culture, like apparently eating pop rocks, because she hated eating pop rocks anyway. On other occasions, she would tell people that her mother was a flamenco dancer, or that she was related to the actress Goldie Hawn. Or later on in college, she kept on lying when it got easier because her parents weren't around, And she says in her article, and why not? Why not keep lying? She says, I was good at it. Her fictions, they continued over the years, and she found that her ability to weave a tale started to bear fruit. She went on to graduate school for creative writing, where she says that she was finally in her ideal habitat, a natural exaggerator, surrounded by natural exaggerators. And yet, she says, to her surprise, she found herself drawn to a man named Dave, who was the one student in the program who did not seem eager to impress anyone with his storytelling skills. She writes this. She says, in short order, Dave forced the truth out of me. On our first or second date, Dave asked me so many earnest questions about my award-winning background in ballroom dance that I finally confessed that I only knew the jitterbug. I braced myself for his reaction, but he didn't recoil in horror. To the contrary, he said he found me fascinating, the real me, completely stripped of my fabrications. And then she goes on to say the one thing that made this article interesting. The one reason why I think that it's worth our talking about today. She says, as I began telling him about my actual childhood, I discovered that my life hadn't been as ho-hum as I'd always thought. I had spent years pretending to be Lebanese. That was interesting. My dad was a corporate lawyer who danced in the kitchen like Zorba the Greek. Pretty colorful, right? What's more, I was raised around the corner from my maternal grandparents, my step-grandfather, a double amputee from World War II, and my grandma, an oyster bar owner who once sang backup for Mel Torme. Come to think of it, she says, my childhood was wonderfully unique, and if I hadn't spent my time trying to shock and amaze people, I might have realized it earlier. And that's why this story of hers really struck me this week. Because it turns out that the truth of her life was captivating just as it was. 
without exaggeration and without addition and without any added assertion that it was so. The truth of her life was more engaging than the appearance of truth ever could have been. When I think about how people often speak about truth, truth is all too often accompanied with an exaggeration or with a false certainty or worse, with a threat. Christians have a tendency to do this in particular. I have a pastor friend of mine who when he tells me stories about times where he has been disagreeing with his congregants on things like how they should allocate their budget or where the mission committee should spend their time, he'll wrap up the story by saying in jest, well, that's fine, he's probably going to hell anyway. And he says it as a joke. It is clearly a joke. But it's only funny because it's partly true as to how we as Christians often react with one another when we believe that we have the corner on the truth and that no one can go any other way than the way we want to go. You disagree with what I see as plainly true in my eyes? Well, then that's fine. You're probably going to hell anyway. That's on you. That's not on me. And as Christians, we can get defensive about the truth. So defensive that we resort to any extremity to make our point seem more valid or more reliable or more undeniable. And then we look at scripture and we see that exaggeration and extremity is not how Jesus went about sharing the truth. Our passage for today, it comes in the midst of Jesus presenting a really long defense about his identity. Starting in the chapter before chapter 8, we see that Jesus is being accused of violating the law, the religious law, and he's being accused by the temple leaders because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, which was considered work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so... As time went on, people started to accuse Jesus of having a demon, of being a fraud, of deceiving, intentionally deceiving other people. But rather than choosing to threaten his critics with a believe me or else, and rather than condemning them all to hell, which if anyone could, it was probably Jesus, rather than writing them off and only speaking to the people that he knew already believed in him, already agreed with him. Rather than doing all of that, Jesus advocated for the truth consistently and persistently by pointing to the identity of his life. In chapter 7, verse 28, it says this, Then Jesus cried out as he was teaching in the temple. He said, You know me, and you know where I am from. I have not come on my own, but the one who has sent me is true, and you don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. That's his only defense. It appears as though Jesus didn't primarily concern himself with exaggerations or threats, and it appears as though Jesus didn't really even concern himself with how to get people to believe in him at all. He didn't seem to worry about finding tricks and ways and different methods of saying, believe in me or else. But rather, 
Jesus primarily concerned himself with consistently pointing to his identity as evidence of what he knew to be true. And his identity was this. God had created him as God's son. He didn't need to prove anything else. The greatest truth that Jesus wanted people to hear was that he was a child of God's. He didn't need to prove anything or manipulate anyone. He was a child of God's. Come down so that the whole world might know that we are children of God too. It strikes me that the one person who really could have had a solid ground of persuasion for getting us to believe the truth instead chose to say if you want to know the truth you just need to believe that I was made as God's son and that you are God's children too. Sometimes we also who are God's children sometimes we are inclined to preserve the truth by exaggerating it. Sometimes we are inclined to believe that somehow we won't have our truth heard and known and believed unless we point to the most extreme and outlandish stories of evidence. I often hear stories as evidence of Jesus Christ that are really miraculous stories. People say, see, That man over there, he was in a gang and he was addicted to drugs, but then he met Jesus and now he's free of those things. So see, because of the extremity, Jesus must be true. Or you'll hear people say, see, look at that woman over there. She was depressed and suicidal and then she surrendered her life to Christ and now she feels joy and contentment again. So that means that God must be sovereign. And these stories are often very true, and I am glad that they are so, and I am grateful for stories like these, but my friends, we don't have to point to the extremes to know the truth that is in Christ. And the truth of Jesus Christ is that our identity is as much as it is in Christ as the identity of these others. What am I saying? What I'm saying is this. If we want to live into the six great ends of the church, the greatest end that we are talking today being of uh, preserving the truth. If we want to be a church that preserves the truth into the next generation, we don't need to start creating fights about who belongs in church and who doesn't. We don't need to start creating fights and arguments about who's the right person to vote for and who's not. We don't need to start persuading people that we have to be able to eat certain things or live a certain way or dress a certain way or make a certain amount of money. If we want to preserve the truth, those are not the things that we are asked to do far from it. If we want to preserve the truth, we have to remember and declare one thing. We are children of God, created to be so. And so is everyone else created to be so. If we want to preserve the truth, then we need to tell that story over and over again. And we need to tell why that is so. I am a child of God not because of what I have done. 
not because I went to seminary, not because I was a pretty good kid who stayed out of trouble, not because I know how to read Hebrew and Greek, not because I pray a lot, not because I've given my life over to serve the church. I'm not a child of God because of those things. I'm a child of God because God loved me first. I'm a child of God, and when I pray, I pray for a long time, and sometimes those prayers are answered, and sometimes they're not, or sometimes they're answered with a no, and it drives me bonkers, but you know what? I'm still a child of God. Sometimes I worry a lot that my kids aren't going to make it, that my own children, PKs, are not going to become faithful Christians. I worry about it. I pray about it. You know what? I'm still a child of God. We tell our stories to preserve the truth that we are children of God. We don't all have to be former gang members. We don't have to all be former drug addicts. We don't all have to be people who have recovered from mental illness. We might still be in the midst of it. We don't have to be recovered from our addictions. We might still be in the midst of it. It doesn't change the truth that we are children of God. Friends, if we are going to go out into the world preserving the truth, then we have to tell the truth of who we are. You and me, we are children of God. Please join me as we pray. Lord, we are grateful for the ways that you claim us. We are grateful for the way that you continue to beckon toward us. We are grateful for the way that you call us not only your children, but also your friends. We pray, Lord, that you will give us the courage to be able to Meet that great purpose of the church to preserve the truth. And we ask that you will protect us from the temptation of wrapping that up into the tiny little behaviors that we nitpick about one another. We pray that you will protect us from those temptations and instead nestle us right into the center of the truth that we are your children and that we are loved and that it's not the extremity that makes it true It's the everyday reality and consistency. It's the everyday faithfulness of your spirit that makes it so. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.